I'm just, I'm just one man, not worthy of applause. Yeah, so Steve is uh, over at North Shore. For those of you who don't know, uh, Shannon was mentioning that in just a couple weeks, we're celebrating 20 years of Northview being a church. Uh, North Shore Community Church, formerly North Shore Baptist Church over in the Kirkland Bothell area, uh, is our sending church. They're the church that 20 years ago decided to plant here in the Mill Creek area, and we are the result of that. Um, they're a, a big church planting church. Cascade Community Church out in Monroe is another one of them. That's our sister church. Uh, so today they're celebrating 50 years uh, of being a church, which is absolutely incredible. Uh, and Steve was on staff at North Shore for 25 of those years. So he, uh, he thought it good to go there, enjoy the morning, um, and we don't really totally know what they're doing, but we can be celebrating alongside them. 50 years is an incredible legacy, uh, especially up here in the Northwest uh, for a church. But I'm curious, we did this at Church in the Park uh, 20 years ago, North U started. Is there anyone here in first service that was there when North Shore decided to plant? Right? See, look at that. So they're still, they're still here. That's awesome. Thank you guys for your faithfulness uh, here at Northview. Uh, so my name is Rob. I'm the student ministries director here at Northview. Uh, if you've been visiting, um, I shared right before Church in the Park, which was a month ago and today. I don't usually share that often uh, down here in main service. I'm usually with the high schoolers in second service, uh, but filling in uh, for Steve this morning. Part of filling in for Steve involves what Steve often does to me is what I'm going to do to Shannon. So Shannon covered my, my role of announcements this morning. And then what often happens is Steve decides that he has a couple more announcements uh, that are important. And these are from Steve. So Steve is still impacting us this morning. All right. He was like, make sure after Shannon shares that you share these couple. And I decided, all right, that's fair. Uh, the first, as we head into the fall, is community groups here at Northview. A lot of you are plugged in uh, to some sort of small group through our church. And I want to encourage you, that is a great way to go through life. Um, I know for us, our small group has been a huge blessing uh, in our life. The guys and I are talking about making sure we can all go to men's retreat in a couple weeks together. Uh, the gals are going to do something while we're gone. Uh, and if you're not plugged into a community group, I want to encourage you that intentional Christian community, those people that you can walk through anything in life with is absolutely key and vital. Um, you can head onto our website. You can talk to someone on staff. We'll help get you some information on existing community groups. Maybe it's by night of the week or the age of your kids or where you live or whatever it may be. And if there's not one, you can always help us start a new one because there might be someone else that would love to do that too. So feel free to talk to any of us. Uh, the second thing uh, that Steve wanted me to mention, uh, so we are part of Converge Northwest. Converge is uh, our conference, formerly the General Baptist Conference. Um, there's Converge World, there's Converge USA, and we are Converge Northwest. We're one of, I think there's seven or nine um, branches of Converge in the United States. Uh, we're up here in the Northwest. Um, last week with Hurricane Dorian, uh, Converge Southeast uh, was pr hit pretty hard. Uh, they, we have, Converge has five churches um, on one of the islands that was hit by the hurricane. Uh, and we're not totally sure, but it, it sounds like those five churches, um, I, don't, I don't know if the physical buildings are still there anymore. Uh, so five of our sister churches, our brothers and sisters in Christ, um, are down there, and they are immediately thrust to the front lines of hurricane relief there in the Bahamas. Uh, so Converge Southeast has set up a fund. Uh, it's the Converge Bahamas Hurricane Relief Fund. Uh, <laughs> whoa. Uh, they shortened it because it did have Southeast in there at one point. 
Um, so if you're interested, if you want to donate, it's not only to help uh, our sister churches down in the Bahamas get back up and going, but um, they're going to be able to help the community that they're in. And their big thing, I was watching a video on it this morning uh, from their district area minister, and he was saying their, their big call is right now to be able to build up funds and resources so that um, after the help stops coming, they're able to keep going. Uh, we have incredible organizations in this country that will help, but unfortunately the next thing will come up and those organizations will head on, but those churches will be there on the front lines uh, being able to serve their communities. So if you would like to give to that or want some more information, uh, let me know or you can head to converge.org and look for the um, southeast section of it. Um, so anyway, there we go. That Do we want more announcements? No. Uh, <laughs> So welcome this morning. We're continuing in the book of Mark uh, as we have been um, all year, which has been absolutely incredible. And today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. And I'm going to give you a heads up right now. I didn't do this last time I spoke, but I've done it before. And I do it every Sunday with the high school. There's going to be a little bit of crowd participation this morning. All right. So stay tuned, and you might get to be part of that if you're lucky. Uh, so this account that we're going to be looking at, just to give the little overview, is it, it details Jesus and three of his, his disciples coming back to the rest of the group and being immediately thrust in the middle of a difficult situation. And through that was an incredible healing opportunity and teaching opportunity from Jesus. Uh, and what I would like to do is... I want us to go through the whole passage first as a group, and then we're going to go through and break down a couple parts of it. So, crowd participation number one. I'm going to be talking a lot this morning. Who would like to read Mark chapter 9, 14 to 29 for everybody? Will you join me in a word of prayer as we dive in this morning? Dear Lord, I thank you for the account and record that you give of uh, how you meet us and how you interact and heal in your power, Lord. This morning, um, no matter what I say and no matter what I have written down, I pray that you speak to each of our hearts and a truth of you is illuminated that may not have been there before, something we remember about you. Uh, be with us, Lord, and bless our time together. In your son's name, amen. Yeah, so when Steve asked me to speak, I said, sure. And then I looked at the passage. So, yeah, we, it, it's, it's a little bit intense. Uh, Thank you, Emily, once again for reading. Uh, so this account follows where we have been looking at. Um, last week, Pastor Steve walked us through the transfiguration of Jesus, where Jesus, uh, along with three of his disciples, went to a nearby mountain, and Jesus was shown in all of his true glory and wonder and splendor before them. They saw Jesus, these three men, in, in divine, heavily, heavenly radiance. And they gained a better understanding of who he was and probably to some extent a little bit more confusion about this guy that they were following as they see these events unfold. Whoops, whoops. This is the map that Steve used last week. This helps illustrate where things are happening. Uh, just north of the Sea of Galilee, there uh, is a mountain with a pin in it. This is where a lot of theologians and Bible scholars believe this is happening. Um, and I, I like to show that. So does Steve because it's really cool to see where these events that we read about happen. I think sometimes we read um, the Bible and we read these stories, we're like, wow, that's cool, but I can never picture where that might have taken place. And we get to see that these are real places where Jesus engaged in his ministry. Has anyone here been to Israel and seen any of the places in Scripture? That's awesome. I, 
that's on my list. Some, someday I want to go. So at the start of the story, Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, really his core three of the disciples, are returning, and they're greeted by this large crowd. And in the midst of the crowd are the other disciples, and there's some full-on argument going on among everybody. And I have to kind of wonder what this felt like to the three that went with Jesus. They left probably the day before, and everything was, was all right. They're used to crowds. They're used to people coming around. Jesus has the three of them leave with him. They end up seeing him in all of his glory and divinity and just getting their world rocked. They see Moses and Elijah, two Bible heroes that they grew up knowing about, show up with Jesus to end suddenly have Jesus say, don't tell anybody about this yet. So they're still processing, and they show back up, and there's this large crowd, and the rest of the disciples are in an argument with the crowd. No time to process. They're right back in the middle of it. I think a lot of us can relate to those situations. Maybe something happened at work or at home, and then you go to the other place thinking things will calm down, and you walk in, and it's just as crazy as there, and you're just like, I just... I need a minute, and I have no doubt that's what the three of them are doing. What I think is happening here, what I think is the argument that's underway, is that the scribes, the teachers of the law, the crowd, and especially the man who's referenced, the father who's referenced in the story, show up because they believe that's where Jesus is. All throughout his ministry, people show up to seek healing, to encounter Jesus, to meet him, to see who everybody's talking about, uh, and they expect to see him. But he wasn't there. And so what these people did is they put their expectations that they had for Jesus on the other nine disciples. And this is probably what started the argument. Jesus wasn't matching their expectations. And the disciples, while incredible men of faith, were not able to live up their expectations. And I think sometimes we do this as well. We put the expectations of what we want God to do on the people, the stuff, the situations around us. And we get frustrated when someone doesn't live up to it, when they're not living up to what I think God should be doing in there. We feel let down and disappointed. But then Jesus and the three show up. They walk out. The crowd probably sees them from a distance time and time again. Poor Jesus can't get any peace and quiet, no time to talk with these three. They see him and the crowd leaves the nine. They ditch them and head straight to Jesus. Through a little bit of Q&A, a little bit of conversation, we start seeing what the situation is. This man, this father, steps forward with his son who is possessed. Again, think about the three that were just on the mountain. You just saw the transfiguration. You just saw Moses and Elijah. You come back. A crowd runs towards you. And then a man with a son who is possessed shows up right in front of you. I was reading through this and starting to get a little bit overwhelmed at trying to picture the situation and trying to wrap my mind around everything that was going on. Now, this isn't their first time. It's not the disciples' first time seeing something like this happen. It's far from their last. But I would wager that in this moment it's a surprise, that there's a lot going on. They're on a little bit of information overload. So Jesus investigates the situation. He allows the man to share about what is going on with his son. The father details about what happens when the spirit takes hold. 
And he throws out that the disciples were unable to cast out the demon. He put his expectations of what Jesus could do on them, and they could not do it. And whether or not this is accusatory, we don't know the tone that he was saying. He may have just been stating a fact. He may have been accusing the disciples of being unable to do this. But I think we can see that would be enough to spark an argument among everyone that was going on. So Jesus responds, calls them a faithful and unbelieving generation. Because the people around him time and time again did not fully believe despite everything that they've seen Jesus do. He refers to them as an unbelieving generation. This could be the scribes, the teachers of the law, the crowd. It could be his own disciples. It's applicable to everybody in this because they're all facing another episode of disbelief of Jesus by not fully depending on him. A lot of the people here, especially the disciples, had seen, they had heard with firsthand knowledge of what Jesus had done yet they didn't fully believe. These crowds that followed Jesus all over the place had seen incredible miracles. And we've looked at a lot of those the last eight months of seeing the things that Jesus is doing, and they're still not quite there. And I think for us, looking today, we we read this and we're like, oh, those guys. How did they not get it? Look at the things that they're doing. They're with Jesus. And then I'm challenged wondering how often... I do the same thing as these guys. We overlook the things in life that God has done and we choose to not fully put our trust and faith in Him. Now there's a lot more that happens uh, between the Father and, the, and, and Jesus and the things that are going on with the Son and they dive into it and uh, the account is there. But I think the most interesting thing to me is at the end of his interaction with the Father. The Father tells Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. I love the way that Jesus responds to people. And I really like it in this moment. In quotes, Jesus says, if you can. Like, <laughs> this guy's like, hey Jesus, if you can do that. And Jesus is like, if, like, what, what are you doing here? If, he responds in a way that highlights this continuing gap of people's faith in his abilities. It's like, Jesus, you did a lot of great things, and I've heard things, and this crowd said you can do anything, but if you can this time, that would be great. And what Jesus does is he highlights this man's lack of faith in the might, ability, and power of Jesus. And again, if we were to reflect honestly, I think we tell Jesus the same thing. I think a lot of our prayers are, hey Jesus, if, if you can do this. Maybe we've seen what God can do for other people or what he has done for other people. And we maybe don't think that he could do the same for us. Maybe we think we have a better way. And for me, when I tell God if, I find that there's a second part to it. And that's the part of me that doesn't think he's capable in that moment. 
And for me, a lot of times that's because maybe the way he's going to react, the way he's going to move isn't in line with what I think he should do. So I give Jesus an if. The man also seeks, depending on your, your translation, he, spe- he seeks compassion or pity from Jesus. If you can do something, take pity on us. If you can do something, take compassion on us. One of those two words. And I, I like the translations that use compassion. Because for me, pity is a recognition that there's something wrong. Compassion drives you to action. Compassion is driven by a desire to see something changed and to say, I'm going to take what I have, who I am, and I'm going to intervene on this. And on that note, I do want to thank you to those of you that support Northview. And especially this last summer, those of you that saw compassion and things that we were doing with the elementary kids VBX programs with summer camp with our mission trip and said, I recognize there's a need that these people can go fill that someone can go help. And I want to be a part of that, whether it was financially or prayerfully. I once again want to say thank you to those of you that helped. And man, it was awesome being in Mexico this summer, knowing that we had a church behind us praying and supporting us. That was so cool. So the father responds. And for a moment, his son is kind of set aside and, with Jesus' response of, if you, if you believe, then things are possible. And he responds, highlighting his own spiritual shortcomings. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Help me. This has now become a healing mission for two. On two different fronts. In a lot of ways, it's a physical healing for the son. And it's a spiritual healing for the father. And this is common in the ministry of Jesus. Time and time again, we see people come to Jesus for a physical healing, for an ailment, for something going on. And as only Jesus can, he's able to highlight the spiritual side of their life and bring them back into reconciliation with him. Time and time again. There's an initial ask, but it turns into something so much more. Here we have a father. I'm not a parent, but when I am, and if there's something wrong with my kid, I understand, parents, I'm going to move heaven and earth and I'm going to do whatever I can for my kid. This father was seeking out healing for his boy. And the result is a face-to-face interaction with Jesus and a chance to grow his faith. Jesus takes moments such as these to bring people back to him, to build and develop their faith. And I can think of times in my life when there's been something that I need Jesus' help with, something that I would say is like a physical situation in life, whatever that may be, and Jesus uses it as an opportunity to address my faith in him in that moment. Jesus acts in an absolutely incredible way. He casts out the spirit, heals him, uh, and shows in that moment he truly has authority on heaven and earth over the physical and the spiritual. Scripture is right on, and this is a point that highlights, that says spirits tremble and obey in the name of Jesus. Now it continues. We could end there. We could see this is an absolutely 
awesome time. Jesus interacts with this father and the son, heals the son of the spirit. The father's faith is no doubt changed and rocked. I have my, my thought is this guy is going to go on and probably spread the name of Jesus in his town. He's going to go back home to his friends and his family. Like, here's my son. Here's the evidence of God in action right here. But it doesn't stop. There's a little bit more to the story. And that's Jesus' interaction with his disciples. Once the situation seems to have resolved, it says that they've gone indoors. And the disciples asked him privately, now, I have a feeling this is the nine. This is not the three that were with Jesus. They were not initially tasked with the healing. It's somebody of the original nine, which would be cool to know who asked this or if it was kind of a collective group. Uh, I love Peter because Peter reacts. It wasn't Peter. But somebody asks, understandably, like, hey, why, why couldn't we do that? And it's a valid question. If we were to go back to Mark 3, Jesus gives his disciples authority to cast out spirits. And they've done it. They've engaged with this before. It's not the first time. He tells them that some things are beyond them and that some things cannot be accomplished by anything other than prayer. And what that makes me think is that when they were face-to-face with this situation, they lacked a prayerful dependence on God's power. Perhaps it was because they knew Jesus was coming back. He had just gone away. He was just on the mountain. They knew he was on his way back. So maybe they're just trying to hold the ground until he gets there. Maybe because they were hanging out, waiting for him, and a crowd all of a sudden showed up and they felt ambushed. But whatever it was, it seems as if, according to what Jesus is saying, that they did not fully lean into giving that moment over to God they would go on to get it. But here, as we get another glimpse, we see them growing and maturing in their faith in Jesus. They go on to get it in incredible ways. If you've ever read through the book of Acts, which I would highly recommend you do, account of the early church and the spreading of the gospel through the known world, you see these men, they get it. And here they're still learning it. One of the things I love that Jesus does is when he provides some sort of insight, some sort of command, whatever you want to call it, he also provides instruction and demonstration through himself. So here, what I see is when he says that kind can only come about by prayer, you can only do these things through prayer. I'm like, okay, Jesus is telling them prayer is important. So then my immediate reaction, and I try to do this when I'm studying, and I tell the youth to do this, when you see Jesus say to do something, go back and see what has he said about it and what has he done about it. He not only encourages or commands aspects of Christian faith, but he teaches, he instructs, and he lives it out. And prayer is one of the examples that Jesus does that for. Earlier in the ministry, with these same guys, Jesus taught them how to pray and he demonstrated what a prayer life centered on the will of the father over the will of the self looks like this summer while we were in mexico the whole the whole group all 300 high school students and their leaders it was absolutely crazy we were all centered and focused and rallied on matthew chapter 6 
all of the different churches, there was nine churches that went to Mexico together. For all of us, for our individual trainings, Matthew chapter 6 was the focus. And when we got there, it was highlighted in everything that we did. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches, as part of it, how to pray. And he says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then he says, pray, depending on your translation, this is how you should pray, or pray then like this, whatever it says. The key, he is saying, is when you pray, here is an example of how you should do it. And he gives them the Lord's Prayer. And he encourages us when we pray, when we seek him, no matter the situation, to include the elements that he gives us in the Lord's Prayer. Elements of adoration, of praise, of of submission, of repentance, of dependence on him. Those should all be aspects of our prayer to Jesus. Jesus does not say that, hey, here's the Lord's Prayer. This is the only prayer you should use. He says, use this as your template, as your guide. And for me, when I, when I take what's happening in Mark, especially from the point of view of the disciples, and I couple it with what Jesus taught here in Matthew, what I see is submission to God's will over our own. A lot of us would call that surrender. Jesus teaches here in the Lord's Prayer that we are to seek the kingdom of God and reflect that the earth, or desire that the earth reflect that kingdom. Not that the earth reflects our views, our desires, or our assumption of what the kingdom of God should look like. We're called to fully trust in God and believe his plan and will is greater, more perfect than ours, and to submit through prayer. Like I said, when Jesus instructs on something, he does two things. He teaches and he demonstrates. The night before Jesus was betrayed, Jesus broke off from the disciples and went on his own and sought the Father in prayer, submitting his humanity and seeking the will of the divinity of the Father. Jesus also demonstrates regularly, as you read through the Gospels, the importance of breaking away from everyone and seeking God through prayer, of realigning with him. Something that as we read Acts and we continue to read, the disciples finally understood and they did themselves. If Jesus is demonstrating and living out the importance of praying, even as God himself, how much more important is it that we seek God in authentic prayer? Not as a wish list, not as an expectation, but as an act of surrender. Now this is not to say that God will respond right when we want Him to and how we want Him to. The Christian life is recognizing God's authority over us and submitting our will to His, even and especially when it's hard. Sometimes we have no choice in life but to fall to our knees and to seek God through prayer. And the more we seek him through authentic prayer, the more our fellowship with him is established. 
because we serve a God who desires to know us. Not that he doesn't already, but he wants his children to communicate with him. Christians are called to submit to God through prayer. And we see that all throughout Scripture. And as with many things that we read, as with things that I may talk about with the high schoolers, Pastor Steve will talk about here, or you'll talk about in your community groups, it's on the one hand really easy to say, and the living out is so much harder. Uh, I like to ask the, the worship team to come back up as we wrap up. So, so for us, what do we do? I think there's two main aspects to this story in Mark that stand out. In addition, let's not look over his incredible act of healing and his dominion and authority over the spirits. But those two things are seeking God with an if and understanding the importance of submitting to God through prayer. There's many things in life that God has equipped each of us to do. There's a lot of things that he equipped the disciples to do. But there are things that we will face that only God can do. And we need to seek him. We need to trust in him. And we need to understand that he is able and allow his plan to work rather than dictating our own. I'm challenged not to be a believer that goes to God and says, hey, if you can do this, that would be great. But one who tells God, I'm going to choose to trust in you. And just like the father of this boy, there are times I need to go to God and just tell him, help me with my unbelief. Help me to remember to trust you. And like the disciples being reminded by Jesus himself, I need to be reminded of submitting to God and seeking him out through prayer. Again, easy to say, somewhat, also hard to say, also really self-convicting to say, hard to do. Let's be a church community, this body of believers right here in Mill Creek, that holds to the promise of God, that seeks him through prayer, both as a group, as small groups, as couples, as families, as individuals, and a body that supports and encourages one another through anything life brings our way. Would you guys stand with me as we close in prayer and the worship team leads us? Lord, I thank you for the example that you give us in the importance of following and trusting and submitting to you. Lord, stories like this are, are complicated. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of layers. And I pray that we're able to take something away of your might, your power, your incredible ability to heal your authority and your reminder to submit to you in prayer and to seek out your will over our own. In your son's name, amen.